We're in 1 Peter chapter 4. We just read the text a moment ago, verses 7 through 11. A very helpful and practical passage, and hopefully you'll see the benefit in the next few moments. 1 Peter 4, we'll be looking at 7 through 11. On January 13th, 2018, an alert was sent to every cell phone on the island of Hawaii. The message read, quote, Ballistic missile threat inbound. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. For 38 minutes and 13 seconds, the people of Hawaii thought that the end was near. And people reacted the way that you might expect. Fear and panic gripped many. We have video evidence and tweets from that time period showing the hysteria that happened for some. People crying, running, hugging, running into basements and climbing into bathtubs, some speeding over a hundred miles an hour down the, the highway trying to get to safety, some parents even stuffing their children into storm drains to try to keep them safe. One man, after saying what he thought were his goodbyes to his children, collapsed and suffered a massive heart attack. It was a half hour of chaos. Well, we now know that the alert was sent by mistake. It was a a military drill gone horribly, horribly wrong. But for those who were there who got the message that day, It's a moment that I'm sure they will never forget. And it's a moment that, let's be honest, many of us would do good to think about. It'd do us well to consider. What if you only had 38 minutes and 13 seconds left to live? What do you do if you know that the end is near. What would be on your bucket list of the things you have to do? Well, as I was thinking about that question and that event, it it struck me that some people, if you ask them that question, their answer would be the stuff that Peter talked about in last week's passage. Do you remember verse 3, the list of of things that some people do? Look, Look back at your Bibles there. Peter speaks at the end of verse 3 of those that pursue sensuality and lusts and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties. Boy, that's what some people would do. The, The end is near, so just go crazy. Just blow it out. Just go wild and do everything that you've ever wanted to do. And while that might be how some react, Peter's going to be quite clear in our text today that is not how the church should react. In fact, Peter's going to tell us that the church should react in the opposite way. Rather than losing our minds, and rather than going crazy, Peter says, I want you to keep your minds sober. I want you to keep yourself focused so that you can make sure to keep the right priorities. Peter's going to set before us some of the right priorities for how we should live in light of this news. Look, look at verse 7 there in the text. He writes, The end of all things is near, therefore. 
So it's with this alert, this message in view, that we should do some things. He says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another. Verse 4, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. So Peter says, if you're going to make out your bucket list, knowing that the end is near, don't, don't fill it with partying and drinking. Fill it with praying and loving and caring and serving. Peter says that those are the priorities that we should keep in light of this pending news. So the question of the text is, will we keep the right priorities knowing that the end is, is near? Now, I'm sure one of the questions you may have, and maybe you're, some of you are already thinking it, is, is, is how is it that this is true? I mean, it was, it's been a long time since Peter wrote these words. How can those words be true that the end is near? Well, I think there's a a very small distinction that, that might be helpful when it comes to this. When we talk about these issues, we often talk about the end times. Right? That's a good phrase, nothing wrong with that phrase, the end times. But the Bible has a phrase that's slightly different. The Bible often speaks of the last days. And according to Acts chapter 2, we have been in the last days since Pentecost. For 2,000 years we've been in the last days. And I don't know, we might be in the last days for another 2,000 years. But when we talk about the end times, for many of us, the focus is on the question when. But the last days, if you read the Bible carefully, the focus is on the question what. The, the emphasis is not on the calendar. The emphasis is on the to-do list. It's not the, the, the idea of what's the sort of schedule of things. It's what's the priority of things. What is it that you're supposed to be committed to? And God is more concerned about what He is doing and what He will do and what we should be doing in light of that. And so the last days is not so much about chronology as it is about urgency. It's about priorities. And it's about making sure that we are living in the present in light of the future, whether the future's 38 minutes away or 3,000 more years away. So Peter says the end is near, and we should keep these priorities. So Peter's going to set before us four priorities, and Peter is very punchy, and he is to the point, so I'm going to be, follow Peter, I'm going to be punchy and to the point, all right? Priority number one, pray. That's the first priority. He says pray. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. He, he starts with this little phrase, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. He kind of wraps these two ideas together. Be sound and be sober. The idea is to be alert, to be ready, to be focused. It's literally the opposite of what we think of as being drunk. I don't know if you've ever been around someone that's drunk, but when a person becomes drunk, they get mentally fuzzy. They get undisciplined. They're slow to react. They're easily distracted. They're, they're kind of sloppy and disorganized and can be very impulsive and driven by their emotions or the moment. And Peter says, that's the opposite of what you should be doing. 
You need to be clear-headed. You need to be focused and fixed and sharp in your mind. Why? Because there's a lot of things that could intoxicate you, a lot of things that could clutter your mind. Peter says, get out of broom and clear out your mind. Make sure that you're focused on what you should be. Because for some people, the thought that the end of all things is near, it can make them lose their mind. They start worrying about charts and speculations. And Peter says, calm down. Don't lose your mind. In fact, keep your mind as clear as possible. So that why? Not so that you can speculate, but so that you can intercede and pray. That's the thing he wants. Don't be impulsive. Be level-headed. Notice he says, do this. Why? For the purpose of prayer. That's the goal. Since the end is near. You know what Peter's saying? The end of the world needs less bomb shelters and more prayer chapels. That's what he's saying. We, we, we should, that reality should force us to our knees. Not to isolate ourselves into hysteria, but to intercede for those that need Christ and to pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Peter says you got to think better so that you can pray better. you got to think clearly so that you can pray clearly. Sometimes our prayer life struggles because first and foremost our thought life struggles. I don't know about you, but... Many times I sit down to pray, and I will sit down, and I'll start praying, and dear God, I help this thing that's coming up, and this thing i got to do at work, and then I'll start thinking, boy, i got a lot to do at work, and i got to study this, and i got to email that person, and for the next thing you know, I'm not even praying. I'm just thinking about all the stuff i got to do. I don't know if you've ever done that. My little trick that I have learned, I kid you not, I keep a blank notepad with me when I pray. And if a thought crosses my mind, I write it down so I can get back to praying. That's what Peter's saying. You've got to figure out a way to get your head clear, get it in the game, so that you and I will pray. Now, you can't see this in English, but in the original here, it, it's, the word is plural. Be clear-minded so for, for the sake of prayers. Did you know there's all different types of prayers that we should be praying? 1 Timothy 2 speaks of entreaties and petitions and thanksgiving. P- Peter's saying we should pray all those things. It's kind of like he's saying, so if the end of all things makes you sad, pray about it. If the end of all things makes you happy, pray about it. If things are going well, pray about it. If if things are not going well, pray about it. There's a sense in which Peter's reminding us, you you should treat your to-do list as your prayer list. When you watch TV, treat the headlines as your prayer list. When you open your calendar, treat those things as your prayer list. We can pray about anything, which is why we should pray about everything. Peter says, or Scripture says, pray without ceasing. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Prayer, that it comes in all different kinds of forms. Think about it. Every conversation between a parent and a child is not the same. Right? It's all different. My, my, I have six kids for those visiting day. Five boys and one girl. And the girl is super relational. The boys, they'll go weeks without ever you know, text me. I could go a week without seeing them. They'd be like, hey, Dad, and just move on. Like, no big deal. But she, she texts me every day. When she gets her screen time, hey, Daddy, what are you doing? Hey, Daddy, what was for lunch? Hey, Daddy, what was going on? And I was actually looking back through my text messages. Last night, she wrote me and said, she said, hey, Dad, can I have some chips? <laughs> so she, she wanted something. 
The next text message was, you are the best dad in the whole world, which I think was because she wanted some chips now that I think about it, but, but, but that's what she wrote. You scroll back a little bit and she says, hey dad, I didn't sleep last night. The birds were chirping outside my window. You, you scroll back a little more, she says, hey dad, Josiah is annoying me. <laughs> now as a father, every one of those is precious. I enjoy all of They're not all just gimme, gimme, gimme. My friends, God looks forward to your prayers as I look forward to my daughter's text message. God is practically looking at his inbox right now, waiting for you to message him. That's what Peter says. All kinds of prayers we should be offering them and giving them to God. I have a friend who loves to say what's important is required and what's required is important. We all agree that prayer is important, but do we believe that enough to require it of ourselves? Think about it. You schedule time in your day. You factor in how long is it going to take me to get to soccer practice or how long to get to the dentist or how long to get to work, and you factor that in so that you have the time. Do you do the same thing with prayer, or is it just an afterthought? Peter says make it a priority. Put it into place. If you only had, say, 24 hours to live, what would you do? Peter says, spend some of the time praying. Now, maybe you're not a Christian. You're saying, boy, that sounds like hyper-spiritual mumbo-jumbo. Who would really do that? I'll tell you who. Jesus. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? 24 hours left. And what is he doing? He's praying he knows his time is short. And what does he say to the three disciples? Pray. Why does he scold them? Because they fell asleep when they should have been praying. See, I think Peter right here remembered what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the time is short and the end is near, Jesus said, watch and pray. Be alert. Be focused. My friends, we may not be sleeping, but maybe we're too busy scrolling. Too busy clicking, too busy binging, too busy working, too busy studying, too busy doing other things. And Peter would say, no, make the priority to pray. That's the first priority we must have. Number two, Peter tells us in verse eight, number two, we should love. Love. So we pray, we also love. Look, look at verse eight. He says, above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, according to this verse, look at that first phrase there, above all. So according to Peter, love is not just a Christian priority. It really is the Christian priority. Now, if you look at the text closely, I don't think that Peter is putting love over prayer. I think what he's saying here is that love is the priority to the two things that are about to come after it. He's about, in verse 9, he's going to talk about hospitality. And in verse 10, he'll talk about serving. I think what he's saying is, don't do hospitality and serve unless you're first loving. Our hospitality should be loving hospitality. Our service should be loving service. So this is the secret ingredient to everything that's going to come after. That's why he puts it first. Above all, Peter says, love one another. Think about that. If a congregation is going to be known for something, th think about how we, how we judge churches today. 
how we think what success is. My friends, a church can have the preaching of Billy Graham and the music of Chris Tomlin. They can have a children's ministry like Nickelodeon. They can have the, the, the financial status of a Fortune 500 company, but if they do not have love, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. That's what Peter says. Above all, love. What does it mean then to love? If you notice that phrase, love one another in verse 8, Peter sounds a lot like James, who sounds a lot like Paul, who sounds a lot like John, who, guess what, sounds a lot like Jesus. Isn't that what he said? That's where they all got it from. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So this started with the Lord. Now, you, you, some of you have probably heard the term agape. That, that's what this word is, the word for love here. It's a kind of love that's proactive, maybe even forceful and an aggressive kind of love. It's a kind of love that's not about emotions and feelings as much as it is found in actions. It's not that emotions aren't part of it, but it really shows up in actions. That's why the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's John 3, 16. We sometimes misread that verse. It says, for God so, it means for God in this way, love the world that he gave. The so there means this is how we know God loved the world, that he gave his son for us. So that's what this kind of love is. It's a, it's a, it's a love that is tangible. This love is a verb. And notice Peter says, it's not just be loving. It's specifically, look at the verse, love for one another. This is a mutual love. In fact, if you notice, he uses that same phrase in 8, 9, and 10. Look there in your Bibles. He says, love one another. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another. Verse 10, serving one another. So Peter is emphasizing with this phrase how Christians relate to other Christians. Or we might say in a local church or as fellow church members. But what, are, what, what does this look like? Peter says Christians should love other Christians. Which, by the way, my friends, it begs the question... Do you love those around you? And maybe we should ask another question first. Do you even know those around you? It's hard to love people that you don't know. Our, our staff was talking about that this week, and we were com somebody commented that we are now big enough as a church with two services and so forth where everybody won't know everybody, but listen to me, everybody has to know somebody. And we have to form that kind of relationship by which we can have this mutual love. This is where Sunday school is really important. It's where your lives, this is a terrible place to build relationships. I'm, I'm telling you, it's terrible. The best place to do it is with people in smaller groups talking and listening and praying and serving with one another. That's how we do this. Now notice the love here. Look at the beginning of the verse. He says, keep fervent in your love. This is not a wishy-washy love. This is not a, 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 a shallow love. It's a hearty love. It's a committed love, a lasting love, a constant love. I was thinking about it this week. Did you know that the, the easiest bone in your body to break is your clavicle, right, your collarbone? The, most, the, the hardest bone in your body to break, you might know, is your femur bone, right, your thigh. 
hit at the right point, your clavicle can break with just seven pounds of pressure. Seven pounds, that's it, right? But your, your femur bone can withstand up to 3,000 pounds of pressure. That, that's an incredible difference. Well, well, guess what? When Peter's talking about love here, Peter's saying don't have clavicle love. You know, it's real brittle. It's real conditional. It's constantly snapping. No, no, he's saying you need femur bone love that, that, that stands under the pressure. It feels how hard this is. It, it's constant. It's not overly sensitive. It's a pressure that withstands what, what comes its way through thick and thin. And Peter gives us a test to know what this looks like. L- look at your verse there. He says, for love covers a multitude of sins. Now, it's easy to read this and, and say, well, love covers a multitude of my sins. But he's actually talking about other people's sins. He's quoting from Proverbs 12.10 here, which says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Peter's saying that love is the antidote to conflict and to tension and to strife. Where there's love and forgiveness, there is often peace. And Peter encourages that. I, I tell couples in premarital counseling, I say, now be careful when conflict happens. Maybe you haven't had a fight yet, but one of you might be tempted that when a fight happens, one person might get hysterical and one person might get historical. You ever have that happen? You're talking and you're having a thing and all of a sudden they tell you everything you did wrong for 30 years and you're going, where did that come from? That's not fighting fair, right? Listen, those are moments when we forgot this verse. That love covers a multitude of sins. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 says what? That love doesn't even keep a record of wrongs. That's the kind of love, the act of love that Peter is calling all of us to have that's looking for a clean slate and a fresh start. And notice it doesn't have a quota. There's no max capacity. It isn't baseball, three strikes and you're out. It says a multitude of sins. So can I ask you, is there someone in the church family that annoys you, that you're suspicious of, and you secretly hold a grudge against them because they said something years ago, they did something years ago, or maybe they just looked at you and you just have never felt good about them and you you easily assume the worst in them. My friends, the Lord is asking you, are you willing to overlook their sins? He's not telling us to get rid of accountability. He's telling us to get rid of bitterness. My friends, you say, well, they don't deserve it. Exactly. Unmerited favor. You say, well, why would I do that? Because that's what God did with you. That's what God did with me. That's what God did for all of us. That is the beauty of the gospel, that God sent His Son, and and He he gave Himself to be the sacrifice to His own hurt for our good, for our forgiveness, to clean our slate. What did he get out of it? But that's love. And my friends, by the way, you can't show other people this kind of love until you have received this love for yourself. If you're not a Christian today, that's where you need to start. Not in forgiving others, but in first being forgiven by God. And to come to him and to confess your sins and to plead with Christ 
to be your personal Lord and Savior. That's what Peter tells us to, to pray, to love. Number three, he tells us to care. Number three, he tells us to care. Notice verse nine. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, this is another one where he uses the phrase one another. So the last verse was about, watch this, Christians, loving Christians. This verse is about Christians caring for Christians. And he says here, make sure that you, you show this to the, should we show care to those outside the family of God? Absolutely. But he's saying you've got to first make sure you show it inside the family of God. Now, what does it mean to be hospitable? I mentioned a moment ago that word you may have heard of before in verse 8, agape. This is actually another one of those words you may have heard of before, phileo. But he uses it in a weird, uh, in an unusual way, a compound word, all right? Have you ever heard the word xenophobia? Right? Xenophobia means prejudice it's it's akin to bigotry and racism right that's xenophobia it's literally fear of strangers this word right here is the opposite of xenophobia it's philoxenia it's not fear of strangers it's love of strangers it it, it is a, a kindness towards people that maybe you don't know as well here he is telling them that they should show this kind of love they should practice hospitality. Now, in Peter's day, this was really practical. They knew exactly what he meant by this. And it, it maybe is a little hard for us. Alistair Begg, I thought he connected it well. He said, in verse 8, those who open their hearts will, in verse 9, open their homes. That's what this means. It means to welcome people to you. In the ancient world, uh, hotels were often uh, hard to find, some were expensive, and many in the Roman Empire were more like brothels than anything else. And so the Christians, when they would travel, which wasn't that often, but when they did travel, they had to depend upon the kindness and the generosity of other believers, and some they had never met. It, 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 go read some church history, I promise you. The early church basically invented an unofficial network of Airbnbs in the first century. They had whole instructions. There's this thing called the Didache. They talk about, here's how you accept Christians when they come into town. You gotta make sure they're a Christian first. Go read 2nd and 3rd John. That's exactly what he says. If they come to you and they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, then don't welcome them because they're a false teacher. But otherwise, welcome them in. Take care of them. So he tells them, practically show this kind of tangible love to each other. But by the way, this is one of the qualifications for an elder, that he is to be hospitable. So let me ask the elders in our room and the potential elders in our room, are you a good example of this? Do, do people in church know what the inside of your home looks like? Do, do, do you model for the rest of the church family? Are we showing them this, this kind of kindness and generosity? We're supposed to. Peter adds this phrase, and do it without complaint. Think about it. When you have travelers and refugees and sick and needy people knocking on your door in the middle of the night to come in, and they're sleeping in your bed and using your bathroom and watching your TV and eating your food, don't you think it's going to be a little inconvenient? Might you feel tempted to grumble, to complain, to get a little bit ornery about it? Peter says, now look, you can't control what they do, but you know what you can control? What you do. You cannot complain. 
You can serve them with open hands and open arms and open homes. You can show them the kind of generosity that they need in their moment of need. But by the way, do you remember, do you remember the liability? Remember when Lot welcomed the strangers into his house? Their lives were in his hands. He had a responsibility. It's, it's a big task. But Peter says, do it willingly, not complaining. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think most of us probably in this room book our hotels online, right? Something, we're not looking for that. But, but I think a very practical way we do this, specifically as a church family, is when we go out of our way and we make an effort to share tangibly with each other, specifically in sharing meals with each other. I, I don't mean, I told the first service, I don't mean to make light of this, but Baptists seem to think that the, the panacea, the cure-all for everything is a casserole. Right? Lose your job, here's a casserole. You're sick, here's a casserole. Right? Like we just, we apparently think, well, we can't fix you, but well, here's some food, you know, we'll, we'll pass it along to you. But actually, I think that's a really good way to practice hospitality. That's what this means. It is, it's tangible. This is not just, oh, my thoughts are with you. This is literally doing something to help a person in need. And, and by the way, I, can I just say, I, I, I know sometimes preachers sound mad all the time. I'm not mad, I promise you. But I think we as a church actually do a pretty good job with this. I, I know I, I, will embar- I probably embarrassed her in the first service, but we owe a debt of gratitude to a leader in our women's ministry, Amy Seckman. She organizes that effort for the women and the families of our church, and she functions like a true deaconess. I'm telling you, every time she sends out an email for a meal train, she is saying, here's a chance to obey verse 9. And if you're not on her email list, you need to get on it. Because there is a, a, we need to find ways to practically, tangibly show hospitality. Now, that's not the only way to do it. But this verse would call us, do you show care? Not just do you think it, but do you actually do something? Does it show up in offering to maybe mow someone's lawn when they're sick? To watch their kids when they need an evening off? To to help a college student do their laundry? It can come in a thousand different ways, but it means to get your hands dirty. That should be a priority. Not think about yourself. The end is near. So think about somebody else. The fourth and final priority here is to serve. Peter says very simply, we pray, we love, we care. Number four, we serve. Notice verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So watch again. Here's what Peter says. Verse 8 was about Christians loving Christians. Verse 9 is about Christians caring for Christians. Now verse 10 is about Christians serving or ministering to other Christians. When he says there, as each one has received a special gift, he's talking here about what we call spiritual gifts. The moment you became a Christian or a believer, God gave you at least one spiritual gift, whether you were six or 60 years of age. And each of us has that gift and should use it. Now you say, well, preacher, what is my gift? I don't know. That's for you to discover. If you want to read more on this, read 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, two chapters that talk about this. Now I know there's quizzes you can take and all kinds of things, but listen, you want to know the simplest way to discover your spiritual gift? Simplest way. Do stuff. I'm serious. 
Your gift was given to you supernaturally, but it will show up to you naturally. It will show up in the things that you enjoy, the interests, the abilities, the skill set. Case in point, I think my spiritual gift is teaching. I'm not sure. I'm still working this out. No, I'm just kidding. But, but, but what, listen, one of the ways that I know this is because Sunday mornings, I practically speed to church. I love doing this. And some of you that teach Sunday school class, you know you, you look forward to that. Now, if you ask my wife to teach a class or give a lesson, she would hate it. She would dread it. She would do it because she's a good church member, but she would not enjoy it. Okay, but when I say to her, hey, what are you doing? And you give her a spreadsheet and VBS and you say, here, go for it. She'll show me these complicated work Excel spreadsheets of these times and these schedules and these people. And to me, it's it's so overwhelming. I'm terrified by it. But she's all energized and jazzed. Look what I did, you know. So my daydream is her nightmare. And her daydream is my nightmare. Okay. So teaching, I think that's the gift I have. Administration, that's the gift that she has. We don't have the same gift. See, sometimes we think, well, if I'm going to be spiritual, I've got to do what that guy does. That's not necessarily true. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, in some sense, my gift, the gift of teaching or that others have, it's not more important, it's just louder. Right? So it looks more important, but in some sense, it's not. What all of us do is important. And Peter's calling us to what, we, what Ephesians 4 calls every member ministry. God has given some pastors, teachers, not to do the work of, of ministry, but to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. To create avenues and ministries and opportunities and programs and ways that you can all use your gifts to build each other up. This is not a spectator sport. We are all to serve. He says each one has received. Listen, no Christian is off the hook in this. There is no such thing as a giftless Christian. And if birthday parties have taught us anything, gifts are useless if you leave them in the box. You gotta open them up. You gotta take them out. You gotta enjoy them and use them. And Peter says God's people serve by using God's gifts. And notice it's a privilege. He says, verse 10, you're be good stewards of the grace of God. He's entrusted this to you. Manage it well. You don't manage it well by putting it on the shelf and not using it. No, you manage it well by discovering what it is and putting it into practice. Peter's encouraging us and calling us, again, as Ephesians 4 says, to do the work of ministry. And in that sense, every Christian is not a pastor, but every Christian is a minister in that we build each other up. Forgive me for... Can I go on a soapbox for a second? I don't care. I'm going to do it anyhow. But uh, for a quick soapbox here. I, this is my, uh, the, I'm, okay, this is my, I think that we have overly, in modern Christianity, we, and I say we generically, we have overly used this idea of ministry. It's become a catch-all for anything kind of good that I feel like I'm doing. Okay? So some people say, well, yeah, my ministry is I work with a lot of lost people. Well, it's good that you work with lost people, but that's not, necessar- not necessarily. Listen, read your Bible carefully. I'm, pre- I'm convinced 
that ministry, as you read it in the New Testament, it is always flowing out of a local church or flowing into a local church. The idea that there's this thing called ministry over here and the church over here and they're totally disconnected and I can be over there and totally not be here makes no sense in the New Testament. Your gifts are not just for you. Your gifts are for the community. And they're meant to be, meant to be used to build up the community. It's not about your ego. It's about his kingdom. It's about, not about you, but everyone else around you. So to do it in isolation really doesn't, make, this really doesn't make any sense when we see what the spiritual gifts are given for. And so Peter calls us. Every one of us is to serve. Notice verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves as one who is serving by the strength which God so supplies. Again, he gives two broad examples here, speaking and serving. And he, he basically is just saying, whichever gift you have, maybe it's in the speaking area, maybe it's in the, the serving area, whatever it is, he says, do it well. Do it right. J- just as the, the preacher is to rely on God's word, the servant is to rely on God's strength. It's not about you. It's ultimately about God. And what's the goal? He says, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He says, no matter what gift you have, it's not there for you. It's not for you to do in isolation. It's for you to do in community, for others around you, and ultimately for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I read this week about a man named William Sidis. I'd never read about him before, born in 1898. By the age of two, he could read and type in English and French. By age, uh, as an adult, he could speak 40 different languages. He was a prodigy in mathematics. One expert who examined him estimated that his IQ was 50 to 100 points higher than Einstein's. Sidis was accepted into Harvard at 11, enrolled at 12, Graduated at 16, and that fall he taught mathematics at a university in Texas. Every student in his class was older than him when he showed up. He was one of the most brilliant mathematicians of the last century. But when he realized how challenging it was and some of the pressures and difficulties that came, William Sidis did the most unbelievable thing that in his early 20s he quit. And he squandered the rest of his life. He changed his name, lived on the streets, in poverty and in obscurity, never using his, his prodigy and his mental abilities in that way again. Now it's easy to hear that and say, man, what a sad story. A man who was so gifted and but he wasted it. Listen to me, my friends. We may not be mathematicians, but Peter says we are all gifted. And it is just as wasteful for a Christian to take the gift that God has given to you and not use it. To just be a spectator, just sit and watch. Peter says, no, 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 no. That is not the priority. My friends, the end is near. Don't waste the time. Be urgent. Put it into practice. And make sure that you're building others up. We might not get an alert on our phone, But the apostles made it clear, the end of all things is near. So what's on your bucket list? The scriptures are clear. Praying, loving, caring, and serving. 
Let's commit ourselves to these today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of 1 Peter today. What a, what a down-to-earth section of your word that speaks, no doubt, to where all of us are sitting. Because, Father, we all have things in this that we could address. So, Lord, first of all, we come to you asking your forgiveness where we have not loved or served or prayed or cared as we should. God, forgive us of our selfishness and our pride and renew within us a desire to be useful to the Master. And Lord, we pray that you'll create avenues and help us to to look for ways in which we can use our gifts and use our resources for your glory and your honor. Father, help us to, to, to be a church known as one that loves. In fact, maybe for some today on this Mother's Day, they may need to, to, to forgive their own mother, knowing that love covers a multitude of sins. May we be people who receive your love and who live out your love through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, to keep these right priorities for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.